If you're new with us, we uh, just last week started a new study here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We are studying the book of Joshua, but not today. We are studying the book of Joshua, but uh, we will start eventually. No, we'll start next week, actually getting into the book. But this is a book that's going to help you to grasp the principles of a victorious walk. In fact, as I said last week, I really believe that the Holy Spirit gave us the book of Joshua, not just as an historical record of Israel entering into the Promised Land and conquering it, but I think in a spiritual sense it becomes an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. You know, Paul the Apostle did say in Romans 15 verse 4 that the things that happened to Israel were written down in the Old Testament Scriptures for our learning as New Testament Christians. And just having finished the book of Ephesians a few weeks ago, we said the book of Joshua flows naturally as the next book to study. Because where in the book of Ephesians, Paul lays out the principles for us in all that we have in Christ and our riches and so on in Christ, the book of Joshua gives us practical insights on how to you know, make those riches our own, how to appropriate those into our life. And so Ephesians taught the principle, the book of Joshua teaches in practice how to claim our riches in Christ. Now, again, a little bit by way of review. Every story is a setting or a background. And we can't really understand where we are unless we understand where we've been. We really can't be successful in the future without first learning from the mistakes of the past. Very important point. And so as we look at Israel, these things were written for our learning. Let me review a little bit from last time. The children of Israel found themselves in slavery in Egypt. Egypt in the scriptures is always a type of the world. And they were under the control of Pharaoh, who was a, a cruel tyrant and taskmaster. Of course, Pharaoh represents Satan. And so here you had the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt, just as we had once been uh, slaves of the devil in bondage in this world. There's a lot of parallels here. Again, these things were written for our learning. But you see, the children of Israel were doomed to remain in Egypt. They were doomed to die there because they had no power to redeem themselves or to set themselves free. So that's where they would have remained. That was their predicament. There was no hope. They were completely without hope in that condition. But God, who was rich in mercy, had compassion, raised up a deliverer, namely Moses, who was a type of Christ. God used Moses to, to take them through the power of God and the blood of the Lamb that God used in Moses to deliver them out of their bondage in Egypt. And after leading them out of Egypt, he led them to the Red Sea, and then into the wilderness. Now, as we talked about last time, once they got into the wilderness, God didn't really intend for them to stay there very long, just long enough to make a covenant with them, to give them the plans for the tabernacle, which they were to build, and then to ordain the priesthood, and then he was going to lead them right into the land. But you remember the story as God led them to the border of the land of Canaan, to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Moses sent in the 12 spies, and 10 of them well, they scoped the land up for 40 days. Ten of them came back and brought an evil report. See, there were giants in the land of Canaan, literal giants. The sons of Anak uh, were renowned as giants. These were the, the race that uh, Goliath and his brothers descended from. These were big guys, and they lived in fortified cities. And the ten evil spies came back and said, we can't take these guys. We're no match for these people. They're giants, literally. And they live in fortified cities. No way can we have victory over these people. 
Joshua and Caleb, who were also part of the spies, said to them, said, wait a minute. Yeah, they're big guys, but our God's bigger. He's given it to us. Let's go in and take it. But the people listened to the ten evil spies and murmured and complained against Moses and the Lord and actually wanted to appoint a leader to take them back to Egypt. So God was so upset. He said to them, because you didn't trust me, because you thought I led you out of Egypt to bring in the Canaan to kill you, because you wouldn't trust me. You didn't believe my promises. Therefore, you know what? You're not going to see the good land I promised you now. You're going to be driven. I'm going to drive you back into the wilderness, and you're going to wander for one year for every day the spies spied out the land. Forty days in the land, 40 years in the wilderness. Until this evil generation all dies out from 20 years old and above. And your children, the ones that you said were going to die in this good land I was going to give you, they're going to possess it, and I'm going to bless them. And so that's really what happened. And as of that point, the wilderness then had a twofold, uh, a twofold purpose. It was a death sentence upon one generation as they wandered aimlessly until they died. In fact, for 40 years, there was a constant stream of corpses and graves in the wilderness. They died never really uh, entering into the, to the rest God provided, the promised land. Never seeing the blessings, the victory, the fruitfulness of this good land that God had promised them. Because of their unbelief, they died in the wilderness. So for one generation, it was a death sentence, a death march for 40 years. But for the younger generation, those that were under 20, it became a time of preparation where the Lord was using this time in the wilderness where they had to trust God every day to bring them bread from heaven, to give them water from the rock, to give them victory over the enemies they did face in the wilderness because they did face a few, to provide shade at, in the in the daytime from the blazing sun as the Shekinah glory hovered over the camp of Israel, and at night he hovered over them in the form of a pillar of fire to give them light and heat. All those years they came to trust God to provide for them, to protect them, and to lead them. For them, the, t- the wilderness was a time of preparation. As Christians, we experience wilderness times, I think especially when we first get saved. And I've talked to some Christians who have been in a prolonged wilderness. Now, what does a wilderness represent for us? Well, what it meant with, for Israel was it was a time when they couldn't trust God to do what he promised. They didn't really trust the character and the power of God to do what he had promised. Uh, it was a time where they murmured and complained about everything. They were never sat, No matter what God gave them or did for them, they were always looking over here what he didn't do for them or what he didn't give them. Always murmuring, always complaining, carnality, unbelief. Uh, they got into sexual immorality. They, they, they complained about God's goodness and, and the, his ability to guide them. I mean, it was a real mess. And sometimes we find ourselves in those kind of places where we're going through a spiritual wilderness. Things are dry. Our walk seems kind of dead. We have, really have a hard time trusting God. We have a hard time just believing the promises of God. We find ourselves maybe murmuring and complaining under our breath against God. We all go through those times. And I've talked to people who have gone through prolonged times of wilderness, and they really are, you know, they feel very condemned because they feel like those years were wasted years. I wasted those years. I know it feels that way, but even God can even use the wilderness to our benefit. I'm not saying it's his best for our lives. Ideally, wouldn't it be great if all of us, when we get saved, would trust God implicitly for everything, never have a doubt, Never have a carnal thought. You know, march right into the promised land, the life of the Spirit, power, victory, blessing, that kind of... Wouldn't that be great? It's just not realistic. 
And so we often find ourselves in a wilderness. Now, as we said last time, how long you choose to remain there is really up to you. Every Christian starts out in the wilderness because every one of us are newborn babes and we have to learn to trust God and to walk by faith. But for some people, they never really do learn to trust God and walk by faith because primarily they don't really want to do that. It's just about murmuring and complaining about all God is not doing for them and so on and so forth. But I know this, even though the wilderness is is not God's best for our lives, it does serve a purpose. It's a time of teaching and testing for them back in Israel's day and for us today. It was a time and is a time of preparation where God uses the wilderness to prepare us for a whole new level of relationship with him and service for him. Now, God made this clear to the children of Israel as they came to the end of their wilderness wanderings, right before they entered into the promised land. Now, Moses wouldn't be taking them in. It would be Joshua. But Moses addressed the people one last time. And he reminded them of all that God had said in the law. It's called the book of Deuteronomy, which literally means the second law or the second giving of the law. The idea is that Moses knew he wasn't going to be leading them into the promised land. God had forbidden him to do that. So he wants to address the people one last time. So in Deuteronomy, what Moses does is give the nation his farewell address. And he recounts to them all that God had said to them 40 years earlier. That's why it's called Deuteronomy, the second law. He's really recounting the law the second time. And he wants to remind them, you see... I'm sure that that younger generation, the one that made it through the wilderness, I'm sure during the 40 years of wandering, they probably thought, this is wasted time, right? This is, I don't understand the purpose in this. We often don't understand the purpose in difficult experiences. But Moses wants to to teach them that this wilderness period did have a purpose. God did use it in some very powerful and important ways to teach the children of Israel what they needed to learn before they could actually come into the promised land. And so picking it up in Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 2, Moses said, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Now, you can read the whole passage on your own. But I want you to see the wilderness in their life was literal. In our life, it's spiritual. These are times when God is testing our faith, purifying it through trials and adversities. Trials and adversities, listen to me, that will either make you bitter or better. They will either strengthen our faith or destroy it, even as fire will temper or destroy, depending on what it is you subject to it. Fire tempers steel, of course, but it also destroys things like wood and paper and so on. The trials that God allows in our lives can either be a crucible to purify our faith and prepare us for a whole new level of relationship with God, or the same trials can be our coffin. If we allow uh, these things to kill our faith, where we begin then 
to murmur and complain against God and turn our backs on God. It all depends on how we approach these things, right? We cannot, we cannot control what trials come our way, for the most part. But we certainly can control how we receive them, how we look at them, and if we're going to benefit from them or allow them to make us bitter and cause us to turn our backs on God. That's our responsibility. And I believe that these desert times in our lives can actually be a prelude to a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit upon us. I love what um, God said in Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 4. He said, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. Now, he's not talking about literal water there. He goes on to say, I will pour my Spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. God said, I want to pour my spirit upon you like water upon the dry ground. But if you're not thirsty, you're not going to want my spirit. You have to be thirsty to have more of what God wants to give. If we're glutted with the world, we're not going to be hungry or thirsting for the things of God. That's the way it works. How do you make a person thirsty? Well, the best way I know is stick them in a desert for a couple days. I'll tell you what, after a couple days, they won't be able to think about anything but water. How does God make us, or how does God make a carnal Christian thirsty for the living water of his spirit? He allows their carnality to drive them out into a wilderness time. Our carnality will take us away from God. That's what carnality is, right? It wants to run from God back into the world is what it is. I mean, we're not satisfied with our relationship with the Lord, so we're looking to the things of the world once again to satisfy us. And so the idea is that God allows our carnal attitude and our hunger for the things of the world to drive us into the wilderness, and really He allows then the carnality and the things that we do in that carnal state of mind the consequences, he allows the consequences to beat us up for a while. And once the consequences beat us up long enough, guess what? We start hungering and thirsting again for the things of God. I think of the prodigal son. Comes to his dad one day, young guy, I don't know, maybe 17, 18 years old. Says, Dad, you know, I'm really feeling kind of cramped. My style is being cramped here with you and working on the family ranch. He says, I want to go out there in the world and I want to spread my wings. I'd like you to give me my inheritance so I can just, you know, do my own thing. Father was a good man. He said, well, son, if that's what you really want, gave him his inheritance. Then a kid went off to a faraway country, and it says he wasted it on prodigal living. In fact, the word prodigal means wasteful. We can only imagine what this kid did for the months that he was over there, you know? I mean, wine, women, song, parties, who knows what he was into, right? Until he used up all his money. When, you know, when you got money, you got friends. When you don't have money, you don't have many friends. And so a famine hit that land, and he was hungry. And the only job he could find was slopping pigs, which if you're a Jew, that's about as low as you can get. And he said it, he longed just to feed his stomach with the carob pods that he was feeding these pigs. Until one day he comes to his senses and says, you know, what am I doing here? You know, what, what am I doing here? My dad's servants have plenty to eat. You know, I need to get back to my father's house. I need to go to my dad and tell him I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore, but 
Father, if you just accept me back as a hired servant, that'll be good enough for me. And you remember the story, the son comes home and his father sees him afar off because he was probably looking for him every day and sees him coming back and runs up to him, throws his arm around him and the kid gets into his little prepared uh, speech, you know, Dad, I'm you know, not worthy to be called your son any longer. And before he could even finish it, the father says, come, put a robe on him, put sandals on his feet, give him a signet ring, which means that he is a member of the family in the sense that everything his father has belongs to him. But see, God used the carnality of that young man and his desire to, to satisfy his physical carnal desires to be the thing to actually beat him up to the point where he was ready to hunger and thirst again for the Father's house. You know, what are we supposed to do with a Christian who at one point says, you know, I'm not sure that my relationship with Jesus is all that I really want. I think the world still has some things that, that I, I think I can really benefit from. I, you know, I love the Lord, but I still, you know, there's things out in the world that I, I want. And so you're trying to live between two worlds, trying to serve two masters, right? You're not really, not any good to God that way. And so at one point, the Lord says, you know, if you really think you've got things in the world that are going to, you know, that are going to satisfy you and fulfill you more than what I want to give you in my spirit, then have at it, you know? And I've seen Christians, you know, get, turn their backs on the Lord, go out back into the old life and backslide and get into the partying again, the drinking, the sex, until at one point, they kind of wake up and say, what am I doing here? Man, I don't want this life anymore. Man, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to be drunk all the time and wake up with hangovers and this emptiness. I need to get back to church. I need to get back to the Father's house. There's several important lessons. You know, as we prepare to enter into the book of Joshua, and again, I don't think we're going to have success in the future without learning from the mistakes in the past. But this is all preparation for them entering in these lessons. And I thought we need to spend at least one week before we actually get into the book, uh, looking back a little bit, looking back one more time as Moses tried to get them to do before they entered the promised land, reminding them of their years in the wilderness, which many of them thought were wasted years. And Moses is staying here in Deuteronomy 8. No, those were not wasted years. Those were actually Years that God was teaching and testing and preparing you for the life in Canaan. And so there are lessons to be learned from these various trials and adversities. Even as there's lessons to be learned from our trials and adversities as we walk through desert places. And God uses these things to, things to equip us and prepare us for what he wants to do through us. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting at the beginning of verse 2, Moses says, and you shall remember that the Lord your God has led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Do you see that? God led them all the way during their 40 years in the wilderness. He didn't abandon them or give up on them all the years of their carnality and complaining. He continued to be with them and he continued to lead them. And I want to bring this up because a lot of Christians feel that because they have been carnal and they have done some dumb things and they have made some stupid mistakes, that God has pretty much said to them, well, you made your bed, now lay in it, and God took off and has abandoned them to figure it out for themselves. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If there was ever a bunch of murmuring, complaining, carnal crybabies, it was Israel. And yet God said, or Moses said that the Lord stayed with you all these years. He did not abandon you. You know, God continues to be with us. 
using our mistakes and our sins to really teach us how to hunger and thirst for the true riches, which is what the Lord gives. But He's with us. He hasn't abandoned us. Sometimes we think because we're in the wilderness, God has abandoned us. See, that's what Israel thought, no doubt. Well, it was a little hard for them to really think God had abandoned them physically because the Shekinah glory was there every day in the camp. But I think in our lives, when we go through difficult times, we think at one point that God has abandoned us. Because if he hasn't abandoned us, what am I doing here? Now, it's true that as God led them in the wilderness, he led them to some difficult places because he had to teach them important lessons. The first lesson, of course, when they came right out of Egypt. Here, after Pharaoh, you know, lets them go, he kind of, I guess, wakes up, you might say, and decides, what, am I, what have I done? Get the army. Let's go after them. Let's, let's recapture them and bring them back. Remember the story how that God was leading them through this pillar of cloud by day. And Moses, of course, was the visible human leader of the, of the nation at this point. But you remember how that God led them into a trap, basically. You know, he led them where the Egyptian army was behind them. There was uh, a mountain range on the right, the Red Sea to the left. There was nowhere to go forward. So they were stuck in this, what looked to be like a hopeless situation. Of course, the people were not happy when they saw there was nowhere to run and that the Egyptian army, army was coming hard behind them and they cried out against Moses. And Moses cried out to the Lord. And the Lord says, lift up the, the rod in your hand and stretch it out over the Red Sea. And as he did, the Red Sea parted. And God brought his people through on dry ground to safety and drowned the Egyptian army that came after them. What's the lesson from that story? We've talked about this many times before. God wanted to teach them right up front, you never have to be afraid when I lead your life, even if it seems like you're in a trap or a dead end. You never have to be worried about my ability to lead you because I'll never lead you anywhere where I can't take you all the way where I want you to go. I led you out of Egypt. doesn't matter that you're in a, what looks like a hopeless situation. Sometimes I'll do that. Because I want you to know that I am able to make a way where there is no way. And guess what? If I didn't trap you once in a while and put your back up against the wall, you wouldn't stand still long enough for me to show you how miraculous a God I really am. Think about that. If they were not trapped, they would have scattered in every direction when they saw the Egyptian army approaching. Just like sometimes if God doesn't put our back against the wall where there's no way out in a situation... Man, we would get in there. We'd try to figure out all kinds of ways to get out of this thing. And sometimes God just says, you're not going to, you can't do anything to get out of it. You have to stand still and see the salvation of your God. Let me show you how I can work. What does that do? It builds trust in God to do the impossible. With our God, nothing shall be impossible. You know, as I've looked back over my Christian life, I have seen that my greatest places of spiritual growth were not on the mountaintops. It was in the valley but in a valley where there was no way out, where my back was up against the wall, my faith was being stretched, and where the problem had me absolutely trapped, and there seemed to be no way out. And God was forcing me to stand still and say, Lord, I'm no match for this. I can't. There's no way out. If you don't make a way, then I'm done. And God always opens a way. He always opens a door. And suddenly the problem is completely solved. But if you don't believe that God is leading your life, that all things are working together for your good. 
then you're not going to see the hand of God in your problems or in your circumstances. And if you don't see the hand of God leading you all the way throughout the course of your life, even when you blow it, because that's the thing, right? You know, as Christians, we think, yeah, God is with me as long as I don't mess up. As long as I don't do something stupid and make some dumb decision, okay? I bought this house I couldn't afford. I'm upside down in my mortgage. That was my fault. Why would God help me? Because he loves you. Now, he might help you by helping you sell the house and get out of the mess. But you know what? He never abandons us. He's always there with us. And if you don't know that, then you're not going to be able to hope in what God is wanting to do because he'll use our mistakes to teach us big time, all the time. And if you don't really see God's hand in every area of your life, then you know what? You're going to be prone to feel sorry for yourself and you're going to want to quit. And you're going to begin to look at God in a negative way. You know, as Moses is reviewing their history, reminding them of what a bunch of blockheads they were in the wilderness for all those years, okay? Man, you guys did one dumb thing after another, you know? And those things put themselves in some very difficult places, places that they actually began to complain against God about. And Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27, And you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Folks, that falls into the category of charging God foolishly, the very thing that Job would not do, right? When he found himself in a terrible situation, that was not his fault. Often we find ourselves in terrible situations that are our fault. Not always, but many times. When we find ourselves going through this terrible situation, it's a major problem. And you know what? Sometimes we're prone to think to ourselves, if we don't verbalize it, it's there in our hearts, well, if God was really a good God and he really loved me, would he, why would he let me go through this? So he's God hates me. You know? He hates me because I'm not measuring up. Because I keep blowing it. That's the devil, man. Hammer on you. See, that was their concept. But then Moses went on in verse 31 of Deuteronomy 1 to say, but here's how God actually saw the whole situation. And in the wilderness where you, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, in all the way that you went until you came to this place. See, they looked at the wilderness as a time when God hated them because they were going through so many adverse circumstances and things. And yet, even though they thought that God had abandoned them, the Lord says, no, no, I was with you the whole way. In fact, I carried you. I carried you through the wilderness to this good land. You know, it really reminds me of that little story that has become so overused, it's become cliche. Remember Footprints in the Sand? I don't know if you still hear that too much anymore, but it, was, it got so popular, they wrote it on practically everything, and now people roll their eyes when somebody even mentions it. But it's a very beautiful little story. And I remember the first time I ever read that, when it first came out, I didn't know what it was. I was on vacation in California in a Christian bookstore and looking at stuff, and they had a little card rack uh, for like business card the size cards, and uh, and they had a bunch of these, and it just said footprints in the sand. As I picked it up, started reading it, and you remember how the story goes? It's, it's something along these lines. Uh, one night, a man had a dream. He dreamt he was walking along the beach with the Lord, and across the sky flashed scenes of his life. And as he looked back, he noticed that many times there was only one set of footprints in the sand, and he noticed how that these corresponded to the lowest and most painful times in his life. 
And this really bothered the man. So he asked the Lord about it. He said, Lord, I don't understand. You promised to be with me always. And yet, when I look back over the course of my life, at the very lowest and most difficult points in my life, you abandoned me. And there was only one set of footprints there in the sand. And the Lord said, oh, my son, my precious child, I would never leave you nor abandon you. It was during the lowest and most difficult times of your life. It was then that I carried you. Well, I got to tell you something, folks. When you read that thing for the first time, and I'm reading it along, think I'm getting engrossed in the little story there. And then that last, that last line is like, wow, the impact. But see, that little story captures exactly what we're talking about. Because for many people, they see adversity as a time when God has left them. When the Lord has abandoned them. And the Lord says, no, you don't understand. I was there with you. I carried you through those difficult times. Because you needed to experience those things if I was going to grow in you the things necessary to eventually enter into your personal promised land where you would take on the giants and have victory over all kinds of things for my glory. So first of all, Moses wanted them to know how that no matter how Rough the wilderness had been. God had not abandoned them during those years. He was always with them, in fact, carrying them. Again, in verse 2, Moses said, You should remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to humble you. One of the primary purposes of the wilderness experience was to teach them humility. Very important lesson that he taught them both physically and spiritually in the wilderness. First of all, on the physical level, God was teaching them humility by breaking them of their self-dependence. Verse 3, so he humbled you. Well, how did he humble them? Well, he humbled you by allowing you to hunger and fed you with manna. God purposely led them out into a place, the wilderness, a place where there was no food and no water to bring them face to face with a crisis that they had no control over and no power to change, by the way to force them to become dependent upon God for their physical needs. And God took great care of them in the wilderness. He not only made sure they had food and water, but verse 4 tells us, he says, Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. So God made sure that your clothes never wore out, that you remained healthy. Your feet didn't even swell as you walked on that hot desert sand for 40 years. The wilderness... Desert wilderness is what they walked through. But the wilderness was preparatory. Through it, God was preparing them for the promised land and that place of victory and blessing. But before you can learn to trust God for something as big, big as victory over the giants you face in your life, guess what? you got to learn to trust Him for something small as your daily bread. And so sometimes God will actually take away our means of support and let us experience some poverty to force us to trust Him to provide our basic necessities, to depend on Him more and more. You know, I've seen this in my own life. Of course, Cindy's in my life. When um, we first got saved, God led us then to start the church eventually. And for the first year and a half, I worked a a full-time job uh, for an oil company in the area here. I wasn't in ministry full-time. And uh, back in the uh, 81, 82 uh, I remember I was making over $40,000 a year back then. And I was just a blue-collar grunt, basically, but it was a good job, and I made good money at it. But then the Lord began to lay in my heart that he wanted me to trust him to provide our needs and to have me go full-time. That was a little scary. Full-time, Lord? 
I mean, I got this good job. I mean, you know, can I serve you and then keep this job and not have to worry about my daily bread? No, the Lord said, you know what? I want to use you more. And so I want you to begin to pray about going full time. So I did. A few weeks later, the company comes to us and says, look, we're uh, wanting to scale down, streamline. If anyone wants to take a voluntary layoff, we'll give you a small severance package, broken up over two years, and um, that'll be it. And so I came home, told Cindy, the night before I had to give my answer, we both fasted and prayed that day, went into separate parts of the house and prayed. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I totally trust you. If this is what you want, that's fine. I love to, to do it. And, and I just said, but Lord, I'm just concerned about, you know, making the bills. And I just began to be honest with the Lord. And the Lord spoke to me and said, look, if you are asking me to guarantee that I'm going to keep you at the same economic level that you are right now, I'm not going to do that. But what I will promise you is I'll take care of your daily needs. I said, Lord, that's good enough for me. And so we got into ministry full time. And, you know, there were some rough times back then. I mean, you know, you go from making $40,000 a year to making $12,000 a year. That's quite a drop. We didn't have the money to always provide our basic necessities. We had to trust God. And, you know, what we did every Sunday morning. I would write out our offering to the Lord. And then Monday morning, I would pay the bills. God always came first. I didn't even want to know. Some weeks the church was so small, we couldn't even take a check. Well, I didn't know that until after service on Sunday. So before service, I wrote our offering check to the Lord. And you know what? There were many times when I couldn't pay a full phone bill or a full gas bill. I would give whatever I could. But God always wound up providing our needs and taking care of all the bills. Because we put him first. Was it a little scary at first? Yes. Is a life of faith always easy? No. Is it necessary? You bet. It's necessary if you want to go from one level in your relationship with God to a whole new level. It's going to require faith. And God wants us to learn to depend on him. He doesn't want proud people that say, Lord, I don't really need you to provide my needs. I got that covered. Let's just, you know, I'll just serve you in ministry. God says, i got to humble you now. All right? And some of these will take away our means of support to force us to depend on him for our daily needs. But secondly, God taught them humility on a spiritual level. He says in verse 3, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers knew, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. You know, we put so much emphasis and importance on our physical man. When the spiritual man is so much more important because the spiritual man is eternal, our physical man is only temporary. The greatest and most important hunger a person has is spiritual. And you can't satisfy a spiritual hunger with physical food. You know, Jesus said in John 6 that the manna in the wilderness really fed their physical bodies, but it was really a symbolic of Christ, the bread of life, who would come down and eventually feed man's soul with eternal life and then a continuous uh, feeding of the soul because as we feed on the word of God, of Jesus is the word of God, but also, of course, we have in our laps the word of God in print. And here's the, the idea. Once we get saved, of course, we feed on God's word. This keeps us strong spiritually. Sometimes we don't crave the Word of God. Why? Because we're getting into the junk food of the world. I mean, examine your life. 
Think about the times when you kind of backslid and got off into the world. Did you hunger for the Word of God? Was prayer something you were passionate about doing? Did you even really come to church regularly? Or, you know, once you were in the world, you were just feeding on the world, right? And you kind of had no hunger for the things of God. So what does God do to change that? Well, He will allow adversities to come into our lives. What does adversity do? Well, think about it. When are the times in your life that you felt like praying the most, reading the word the most, drawing close to God the most? Was it in the sunshine or in the storm? See, God humbled Israel by making them dependent upon God for their physical needs, but in the process, he was humbling them spiritually to show them that we don't live by physical bread alone. We are not physical creatures only. We are spiritual creatures. And God wants us to hunger for himself and his word. And sometimes physical adversity, God will use to just really give us a hunger for the things of God again. And that's out of love, folks. That's not because he loves to bring adversity into our lives. He wants to, he knows that as long as we're in the world, we cannot, he cannot possibly bless our lives. Canaan represented God's perfect will for his people. Whenever they were in the land of Canaan, they were blessed. Whenever they disobeyed and rebelled and God had to take them out, it was not good. So God can only bless us when we're walking in the Spirit, when we're in God's perfect will. And sometimes we stray from that, and God has to use adversity to bring us back. But number three, in verse two, as we talk about the purpose of the wilderness and what God was teaching, Moses said, and you shall remember... The Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and, listen, test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God will use trials and testings in our life not to find out things about us that he didn't know. Of course, he knows all everything, but to teach us what's in our hearts. How can we confess our sins and repent of these things? which allows God to then forgive us and cleanse us and fill us with more of His Spirit if we don't even see the thing is there. It's a lot of stuff buried in our hearts, junk, that we don't see that God sees. Adversity has a way of God, it's God's way of turning up the fire, which begins to bring the garbage to the surface. And we begin to see it for what it is, and we can then confess it to God and repent of it. But we know that God already knows everything in our hearts. Jeremiah 17 Verses 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways. God says, I know the heart. And I do things so that you will know what's in your heart. And that's what David was saying in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 4. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is saying, Lord, Test me. Not that you need to know what's in my heart, but you need to show me what's in my heart. I need to be tested. I mean, how are we ever going to know if we really love God and um, trust Him and are willing to obey Him no matter what if He doesn't test our lives from time to time? You know, trials not only test our hearts to find if we're really genuine. We say we love the Lord. We say that we will be obedient to whatever He wants. And then God brings little trials and tests to show us, well, are you sincere about that? But they not only test our hearts, they purify our faith. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 quickly. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, first of all, where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy 
has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And jump down to verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything we receive from God, we receive by faith. Our whole relationship with God is based on our faith and trust in Him. So if our walk with God is going to be deepened and our relationship strengthened with Him, our faith has to be purified. Trials do that. So God will bring those things into our lives, not to destroy us, but to temper our faith, make it even stronger. I'll give you one more out of Deuteronomy 8, verse 5. Moses said, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Verse 5 tells us that the wilderness was used by God to chasten his people for their failures. And the one that I think of most is the one at Kadesh Barnea, where they refused to enter into the promised land because they couldn't trust God to give them the victory over these giants. And so they were driven back out into the wilderness, and the wilderness became a time of chastening, where God was using it to teach them, look, you want to continue this forever? Learn, so I can bring you into the promised land eventually. See, the wilderness in their life and in our life becomes a kind of a spiritual woodshed that God leads us into to sometimes teach us, as he taught them, obedience in everything that God commanded them. Moses made this clear in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 8. Therefore, because of this wilderness experience, therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. See, some people read things like that, you know, how God will use things like adversity and trials and wilderness and all these things to kind of chasten his kids and, and, and teach them obedience. And some people look at that and they say, well, God is really a mean God. No, God's a loving God. And if God didn't teach you to obey, if God didn't teach you through your rebellion and my rebellion to obey him, guess what? That rebellion would eventually lead us into places that would kill us. The result of God chastening our lives, the rod of God upon our lives in chastening us, what form does that take? What does that look like? Well, you know, very honest, very simply, often God uses the consequences of our own sin to be the thing that chastens us. We talked about the prodigal son, right? But he will actually use our own rebellion and the consequences of our sin to be the rod of correction. You know, what did God say to the prophet Jeremiah to Israel? Your own backslidings will what? Reprove you. Sin has built into it consequences, and they're not pleasant. The way of the transgressor is what? Hard. And God says, you know, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. You can obey me, and I will bless you, or you can rebel, and your sin is going to beat you up so bad that eventually you're going to be beaten into submission, which is good. It's up to you. I've seen Christians who learn quickly, and I've seen Christians who would beat their head against the wall for years because they just won't let go. They're saying, you know, David was a shepherd for many years, of course, before he became king. And every shepherd knew something back then that maybe we don't understand today living in a more urban environment that we live in. But if a shepherd had a little lamb that was always wandering off, right? And he had to always go after that lamb and use that crook to kind of drag it back into the fold, right? 
Always walking away, though. See, lambs are in the sheep have no natural defense mechanisms. They are completely helpless against predators, okay? There's no such thing as an attack sheep, okay? You know, no such thing as Lambo, you know, none of that, all right? They are completely helpless. And so if a shepherd had a little lamb that kept wandering off as a last ditch, last resort kind of a thing, he would take that little lamb, take one of its little legs, take his rod, and he would smash that leg and break it. Then he would wrap it up and he'd set it. Then he'd pick that little lamb up and for the next few weeks he would just carry it around in his arm, tucked close to his heart. And after five or six weeks when that lamb's little leg healed, he put it down and guess what? It stayed very close to its shepherd. Now if Peter heard that, they'd be all over us, but <laughs> what's, what's more, what is, what is better? Not to inflict some pain on that little lamb now to keep it from harm or to let it go off and wander away until a wolf or a lion got it. You know, God doesn't want to inflict our lives with pain. God doesn't want to use pain to teach us obedience. He is a good and gentle father. In fact, God said in Psalm 32, he said, you know, don't be like the dumb horse and, and mule that have to be controlled by bit and bridle or else they will not do what you want. God is a, a dumb animal. We have to use bit and bridle and inst instruments of pain to get that creature to go in certain directions. God says, I don't want to have to lead your life through painful circumstances. I want you to be in such close, intimate fellowship with me that I just gesture with my head or my eyes a little bit to go in one direction. You're going. That's God's goal. But sometimes we are rebellious. And so David, having been a shepherd, understood this practice. And then in Psalm 119 likens himself to a sheep because we're all sheep. And he said in, in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, It is good for me to have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 51, verse 8, Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. David has said, Lord, you know, I thank you that you love me so much that you brought some adversity in my life like a shepherd breaking a little lamb's leg to teach me how to obey. Because if you didn't do that, Lord, who knows where my rebellion would have taken me and how devastating that would have been in my life. Hey, even when God has to discipline us, it's not ever out of anger. It's never punitive. It's always corrective because he loves us. And you stay close to me, God is saying, I can bless you and watch over you and protect you and everything. You start walking away. You know, the devil who walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, you're helpless against him. Better stay close to me, and I'll protect you. Now, we're done. Conclusion, verse 16. The conclusion in all of this, Deuteronomy 8, verse 16, Moses said, The Lord who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you, listen, to do you good in the end. And folks, if you don't have that in your mind, I guess what? You are never going to be victorious in your life for God. If that's not in your brain, that even in the difficult moments of my life, God has not abandoned me, God is still with me, and all things are working together for my good, that I might be used by God more fully 
and trust him more completely. I'll tell you what, if you don't think God is for you, read Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? God is not our adversary. Even when we blow it, he's not turning his back on us. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So even in your darkest moments, even when the trial is self-inflicted, I haven't abandoned you. I'll use it. How many times has God used our stupid, carnal things to teach us? And when the whole thing blows up, the Lord has got his arm around us going, look at that. Not too good, is it? Yeah, would have done it my way, could have saved all this mess. Next time, maybe you should try just trusting me. Yes, Lord, I think I will. You know what I'm saying? We've all been there. But God can't do anything good. Forget the promised land. God can't even begin to bless you in a very rudimentary way. As long as there's self-will and self-dependence and a heart of disobedience. God's got to deal with all of that. And that's why he sends trials and desert experiences our way. Not to hurt us, but to help us. But even when we find ourselves in these very difficult places, like David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, God said. I've entitled this message, Learning How to Walk. Because again, I look at the promised land as, you know, Olympic competition warfare kind of a thing. And before you can be an Olympic athlete or Olympic runner, you've got to first learn how to walk. Before you can be more than a conqueror for Christ, you've got to go through spiritual boot camp. And that's what the wilderness is. It is not a wasted time within reason. If you're in the wilderness for 25, 30 years, there's a problem there. But even when we do find ourselves in the wilderness, know this, God is using it to break us, to teach us, to humble us, to use us. It's always the way it works. But I want to just end with this. One last passage. Because as I was putting this together last night, and I'm going over my notes, suddenly this verse popped into my head. And I thought this would be a great way, because we're talking about learning how to walk before we actually enter the promised land and, and begin to really run for the Lord, right? All right. This verse out of Hosea. Turn to Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. Because I thought this verse would go so well with just kind of closing this up, kind of this idea of God teaching us how to walk and even using the wilderness in our lives as a loving father to teach us lessons that we need to learn if we're going to go into that life of the Spirit and blessing and so on. And here's the verse that I thought of, but I didn't remember the entire context until I actually read it. Verse 3, listen to what God said. I taught Ephraim. Ephraim is the northern kingdom of Israel, basically. Okay? I taught Israel to walk, taking them by the arms. You parents, when you taught your little ones to walk, remember how doing that? You take them by their little hands, you know, and little arms, and you know, and you're kind of, you know, they're not really walking, but you know, their little feet are touching the ground, and you got, they, you know, you're totally doing everything, right? But, you know, that you, you learned, you showed them what it kind of felt like to walk, and you were, you know, God says, I did the same thing for Israel. When they were a brand new child of mine, when the nation was first born, I took them by the hands and I taught them how to walk in the wilderness, is the idea. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. You get the picture of a doting father. 
who doted over his people, took them by the hands to teach them how to walk, healed their diseases, fed them, took care of them. They didn't even realize how much God was doting on them. They took it for granted, like we do oftentimes. Verse 5, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refused to repent. Now here's what I want to leave you with. The wilderness serves a purpose within reason. God will use our wilderness times to teach us important lessons, as we said. Even as he tried to use the wilderness to teach Israel how to walk with him. He uses our wilderness experience to teach us how to walk with him. But listen, if we refuse to learn from the carnality and the rebellion of the wilderness, where we repent and begin to now fully surrender to God and walk in the Spirit, if we continue to go on day after day and week after week and month after month and even year after year in our carnal rebellion, at one point God says, even though I love you, even though I gave birth to you, even though I taught you how to walk and I took care of you and watched over you and fed you and you didn't even realize all the things I did for you. If you will continue to be rebellious and continue to go your own way. Well, God said, then, if you refuse to repent, it's going to lead you to something much worse. Egypt was bad. Assyria was much worse. And I don't have time to get into why, but the Assyrians were extremely brutal people. And what God is saying is, if you continue to rebel against me, even though I brought you out of Egypt and planted you in this good, well-watered land, if you don't stop the rebellion and the carnality and you don't come to me in brokenness and surrender, I'm going to bring the Assyrians against you. And that's going to be much worse than what you found yourself experiencing in Egypt. You know, what does God have to do in our lives oftentimes? It's like the, the guy that Paul spoke of in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, I believe. A guy who was a Christian yet living with his own stepmother. And Paul says, man, this is, you guys should have done something about this by now. Deliver this guy to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What does that mean? I don't know, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> I wouldn't want to try it. I mean, sometimes if we are, if we ratchet up the rebellion, God will ratchet up, ratchet up the consequences. And guess what? You're not going to win that war of wills. And if you do, you lose. Because sometimes God will say, and has done this in the past, all right, enough is enough. I've tried to reason with you. I've tried to use your circumstances to humble you. You know what? You're coming home. Read 1 Corinthians 11. Sometimes God says, enough is enough. You're dragging my name through the mud. You won't listen. You won't repent. You refuse to do what I want. You're acting totally rebelliously. You're in the world, again, dragging my name through the mud. You know what? That is it. You're coming home. I don't think anybody wants to go home under those circumstances. But Jesus said in John 5.14 to a man that he had healed who was sick. And I get the impression that this sickness was associated with some sin. Not all sicknesses are. But from what the Lord said, he said, he said you've been healed from this disease, this sickness. Now go out and sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. God's grace only goes so far. So you know what? I want to encourage you. If you find yourself in a wilderness period and a lot of christians i've talked to lately goodness we're done i promise this time i i have talked to a lot of christians though that and things are hard right now 
there's a lot of Christians who really feel like they're in a wilderness. And some of them think, I don't even think I'm saved. Uh, we've talked about this. I, I don't even think I'm saved. It's just like, I'm so dry and dead inside. I have no hunger for the word. I have no desire. Really, I drag myself to church, but I really don't get much out of it. That might be my fault. But he said, you know, they're just saying that I just feel like I'm so dead. I feel like just giving up. Look, God is with you. God loves you. These are difficult times. And I think if more difficult times are coming, I mean really difficult times, it could be the love and grace of God right now to begin to teach us to depend on Him more through our circumstances. That we are prepared for what's coming. We might be facing literal giants, I mean real giants in just a short time. I don't know what all that means. I'm not trying to get you to read between the lines. I'm just saying, if real financial chaos is on the horizon, real anarchy, if Al-Qaeda or somebody else hits us in our cities and and does some horrible things, and we don't lose just 3,000, which was enough, by the way, on 9-11, but we lose 3 or 4 million. What is that going to mean to this country? And are we able to hand, Are we going to be strong enough spiritually and trusting in God enough to be able to stand His lights in the darkness and say, I know it looks hopeless, but there's always hope in God. We need to be strong. And carnality has taken hold on way too many of us and softened us to the point where we're not really strengthen the soldiers for Christ. And so God is allowing the adversity to cause us to hunger and to thirst for the things of God, for His presence and His Word, because we need that. So may God give us grace to understand that these are difficult days, but they could be some of the best days of preparation in our entire Christian life if we approach it that way. And we keep drawing close to God and surrendering every area of carnality and rebellion to Him as the Holy Spirit reveals them to us, we hand them over to God and say, Lord, I don't want this. I don't want this. I'm tired of that old life. I want to walk in the Spirit from now on. If that's your heart, I trust and believe God will answer that prayer. Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for bringing us out of Egypt, out of the world, and taking us by the hand, Lord, and being so patient with us, doting upon us as a loving Father. And Father, forgive us for our carnality. Forgive us for, for still loving the world more than we... It's just a mess, Lord, sometimes. Although we don't want to make a clean break from the world, we want to hang on with one hand to the world and with the other hand try to hang on to You. Give us grace this year, Lord, to stop playing games, to stop trying to serve two masters, to once and for all say, Lord, kill me. Kill me, crucify me, my flesh, that I might walk in the Spirit. I'm tired of the wilderness. I'm tired of the carnality and, and never able to trust you and believe in your promises. Lord, I want to walk in the Spirit now. Give us the grace, Lord, to step from the wilderness into our own personal promised land of victory and blessing and fruitfulness and surrender. Father, we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.